Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the All Souls Forum. Tonight's presentation is entitled, The Intersection of Race and Disability, with Reverend Latia Frazier. It was recorded at the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri, on February 4th, 2003. Welcome to the forum. My name is Alex Westerfeld. I'm glad to represent the forum group this morning as moderator. This is our 80th year providing a platform for discussion of significant issues worldwide and in particular in the Kansas City area. Format is our speaker will present this morning for about 35 minutes and then we begin our question and answer period for about 20 minutes. The program is live streamed on on YouTube, and so viewers can post their questions there when we have our Q&A period, and we will pick those up because we monitor that, and we'll ask those questions on your behalf. For those of you in the audience, please make sure that your cell phones are silenced. Um, today's speaker is Natia Frazier. David Robinson, who is a friend of hers, has asked if he might be able to introduce her out of his respect for her and his work. So, David, we'll introduce our speaker this morning. Well, it all started oh, 15, 20 years ago, I don't know, and I got an email <laughs> from somebody I didn't know. I was the executive director of the whole person um, services for people with disabilities in Kansas City. And I got the email. It was from a young lady who wanted to come and talk to me, and it just happened to be Christmas holiday. And uh, I said, okay, we're usually closed, but you come on in and we'll talk. And she came in and said she wanted to be a disability rights advocate and work for me. And we talked for a while, and I was blown away. So um, I'm very pleased to introduce her today. Um, never, never imagined I'd be up here and saying, um, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome um, Reverend Dr. Latia Fraser. I tell folks who know David, it was his fault that I... I'm in Kansas City this long because he got me to come. Um, but so excited to be here and talk a little bit about disability culture, theology, and a bit about intersectionality. Um, we're going to make see if I can do this. There we go. So I know we'll get to the question part, but we will presume good intent. And I'm open for lots of questions and hoping for good discussion. So introduction about me, I will say that I am originally from New York City, um, and as part of the disability theology world in particular, we say um, that we are a part of the disability community, and in, for me in particular, I am a person that has a physical disability. I live with cerebral palsy. Um, and so that's how I am a part of the disability community. But often when I walk into spaces, 
in particular religious spaces, I'm a lot for people because they have to uh, encounter a lot of their stereotypes or prejudices, right? That maybe they didn't know they had. Because I'm also an African American and I'm a woman. And so it's like a trifecta when I walk in the space. It's fun, especially during interviews, right? To take to take it all in. So the way that I define disability is, and I did a whole doctoral dissertation on it, if you're interested in that sort of really academic stuff, is that it is a culture, just like any other culture that we can be a part of and name, so that we have our own uh, languages, theologies, histories, um, and all, the, and that even within the disability community, there are cultures uh, in it, like subcultures within it. And so the way that I define disability, other than being a culture, is to say that it is simply a way that humans show up in the world. Um, for me, I was born this way, but also, um, if you live long enough and age, you'll have some sort of disability. Or if there's a an accident or health situation that happens. Again, so also I'm black, right? So I'm a part of if people didn't know, um, uh, the what I would name as the African American community, and that disability. Um, Historically, what we've heard about the disability community and culture, if you've heard about it at all, you you see a lot of white faces, which is awesome, right? We want to name those contributions and to realize that within even the disability culture, there is this um, very white view of it. And to I've tried in recent years to search out other people of color who are part of our movement. And I would identify myself as a womanist, um, which is to say uh, there is both the feminist movement and the womanist movement. And historically, the, the feminist movement didn't really take into consideration uh, Black people or Black women identifying people. And so I described to the womanist uh, philosophy because it particularly pertains to women of color. Okay. So a little bit about my disability identity. As I said before, it's a disability culture for me, which is some stats. Over 1 billion people live with some form of disability, and that's broad. Um, one million adults in the United States live with a disability. It means one in four people uh, and one in three people with disabilities don't have access to health care, which is a human right for everyone. But you would think that in a population of people that perhaps need health care or access to health care more, one in three of us don't have access to it. Uh, the number of people with disabilities are dramatically increasing. This is due to COVID, but also just the demographic and health conditions 
that are continuing to happen. And disability crosses all intersecting identities, including but not limited to race, gender, gender identity, um, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, and education level. So within the disability community, much like any other minority community, there is still a hierarchy of disability um, that we don't like to talk about a lot, but it's true. So uh, if we're going on the highest level of this hierarchy, those who acquire their disability is up here. And especially if you acquire your disability, because you were a part of the armed forces and you fought for this country and you came back. And so this is uh, this warrior mentality, right? And then you would have those who in whatever way um, look more like or present more like able-bodied people. So the more that you're able to look like somebody that doesn't or function in the world, like somebody that doesn't have a disability, the higher on the uh, hierarchy you are. But that also means that if you have other intersectional identities, like you're Black or a woman, you go further down on the list. And unfortunately, folks that tend to be on the bottom of this hierarchy are those of my siblings who have intellectual disabilities. And so there's more work that is being done to include all of our, our siblings. Um, and then disability pride flag, I thought I'd name it there um, because just like any culture, we want to have pride in who we are, the contributions we give to all of society. So there we go. Just as a assignment. Also, because of this hierarchy, it also affects the ways in which we're able to connect socially. So someone who acquires their disability has this identity of someone without a disability, and then they have a disability identity, which means that they still have those connections that they had before they had a disability. So socially, those networks that they were able to access, but which isn't always true for those of us who are born with a disability. We don't have the same access to some of the, the social networking always. So I um, I think it's been a few months now, co-facilitated a podcast with a friend called the Millennial Pastor Podcast. And the season nine of that podcast talked all about disability and the church. And because I grew up in more traditional church settings, I've kind of been all through the gamut at this point, but I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And then I'm hanging out with folks in the PCUSA right now. But this is the question that often comes up for folks. Um, they ask it in some way. I call it the magic pill question, that if they're uh, was a magic pill that somehow was created that I would no longer have my disability, right? Would I take it? And I feel about this. My first answer would be no, right? Like, no, uh, this is who I am. It's intricately tied to who I am. And then there are days when I'm like, hmm, and I think about 
I still want my disability, but if I was able to drive, that would, uh, you know, take away some challenges, which then says, really, it's about the societal structure and not about me as a person, right? That if there was access to public transportation, like there is in New York, although there's a lot of challenges with that in New York too, so not to hold that up, but if there was access to that, then the thing that would be disabling me, the lack of access to education, to transportation, wouldn't be there. So it isn't myself, my body, this person that I, that is before you that I don't like, but the things that make it harder uh, to navigate this ableist society. So again, we talked then about body image. And because I grew up in a very Pentecostal situation, uh, going through the theologies of if you believe whatever you believe hard enough about God, then, then you know, magically I would have been healed. Or so that so then it becomes my fault again, right? The fact that I didn't believe hard enough. Um is the reason why or that there's some sin whatever that is that either I did or my family did that have that's caused this disability or that I was just so prideful and to keep me from being so prideful uh, I have this disability and in that case I think everybody then should have a disability because we all have some measure of pride and yet I very strongly believe that not everybody has a disability. Otherwise, there wouldn't be this culture and category of people. There wouldn't be um, discrimination around folks with disabilities, right? That it would be seen as just a regular way humans show up in the world. So then we talk then about ableism. So we've heard a lot about racism and all the isms. So we know that it's not a good thing, but it's just the preference for bodies that don't have a disability. And that's, we do it all the time. When we go into a space, I'm always looking for how accessible is it, right? which I came in today and there were two options for a chair. Awesome. I would I would have sat in any of them, but just the idea that that was a forethought to have it be accessible, right? And, but when I got dropped off uh, today, what I did notice was that there were signs outside and that didn't say accessible when we were talking about like parking or um, but it, it said handicapped, right? So that for me sends a signal, not that people are mean or evil or bad, but that there needs to be maybe some education around how that word is an offensive word for those who are part of the disability community, right? And that we can change, by changing language, it offers a more welcoming space that maybe we would use the word accessible and that when we have parking or accessible when there are bathrooms. Because I will tell you 
that every time I walk into a bathroom, mostly I travel a lot. So in the airports, um, there are, while there are also invisible disabilities, right? So I don't know that everybody doesn't have a disability, but there are many people who choose to access the accessible bathrooms. And I think, why don't we all make them all kind of uh, bigger and more accessible so that then whoever needs to use it can use it. But I would invite us to think about other ways um, ableism shows up. So definitely in our language, and I have to correct myself a lot, right? When we say things like, that was stupid. Well, what are you really trying to say? Like, that wasn't the most intelligent thing to do. Um, or there was a different way to do that. Or when people say things like crazy or nuts or any other thing. When you use language in a way that is negative, it forms those images in our society. So I do a lot of writing as well. And this is one uh, that I wrote for a book called uh, A Liturgy for All Bodies, New Words for a New World. Um, and again, in a lot of Presbyterian spaces um, or more traditional Christian spaces. So thinking about ways we can talk about ableism that can be accessible to a lot a range of folks. Um, would anybody be willing to read that for me? If not, I can. All right. So I guess it is me. All right. So um, this is a prayer against internalized ableism. And internalized ableism is that there are folks within the disability community that have a preference toward uh, people without disabilities or trying to form ourselves in a way that makes us look more and more like those without disabilities. So we struggle with that too in the same way that there might be internalized racism. So this is incarnate God, the God that is with us, who inhabited a human body, who is not accepted by religious institutions and by uh, the larger society. Grant us courage to live in a way that prophetically challenges the inaccessibility of our streets, sidewalks, and buildings our educational systems, legal systems, housing, and healthcare. Have mercy on those who continue to, to make the church inaccessible and paint God as disability phobic. Let us not be conformed to distorted healing narratives linking our humanity to productivity or the myth of the exceptional disabled person. God, root out anything that seeks to separate us from our disabled bodies where God is pleased to dwell in the name of God who became disabled. Amen. So things I might want to point out here, this myth of productivity, we, we are all kind of swimming in those waters. The more you do, the first question we ask when we meet a new person is, what do you do? This myth of you're only human or you're most human based on what you can produce. And then this myth of the exceptional disabled person, which is to say 
you have this disability, but look at this amazing stuff you've done. You've overcome your disability. So we're going to put you on a pedestal and then tell everybody else in this disability community, if she can do it, then you can do it, right? So this myth of the exceptional disabled person. And I will say that um, church as a whole was one of the only institutions that when the ADA was passed, um, actively lobbied against having to implement the Americans with Disabilities Act. So, which is to say when I um, encounter a lot of my friends with disabilities and they, they learn that I'm a pastor, and their question is, well, why do you want to be a part of an institution that actively lobbied against us? That's a good question. And I'm here. So, like, to do this work is one way to say, hey, this is a group of people that have historically been left out of the theological space, this theological conversation. Okay, so then there's the, because I cannot separate my being a person with a disability and my African-American identity. I think the best way I thought to describe this is uh, a poem I wrote. Uh, and this one I wrote when a lot of, there's always something going on, but particularly the story that hit me most was Brianna Taylor, that uh, she could be in her bed asleep and uh, be killed and people not be held accountable for it. And so in a space where uh, the disability community has largely been a white space and then having my identity as an African-American, trying to find spaces where I fit, um, because also the African-American community, you know, generally, I'm sure there are, there's like mix of everything, can be disability phobic. So like you're, I'm shot in these worlds of like, oh, one is really white and the other is, a, is not comfortable with people with disabilities. So this poem I wrote is, again, trying to, um, live in my body because a lot of religious spaces invites us to think about it and to like experience things and yet the 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 way we were created was to be people that have bodies um so this poem is called black archives and it is in the rhythm of if y'all are familiar with maya angelou's work um still i rise so it'll sound a lot like that says, you, you may think you have stripped me of my history and are working to erase Black lives. You may take away my rare breath, but my body keeps Black crippled archives. Does my locks offend you? Every retwisted strand tells the story of resilience, using our hair as a passage to freedom. Ah, such brilliance. Just like the sacredness of birth and the solemnity of death, 
yearly revolutions around the sun, the circle of life with every new day, inhaled and exhaled breath. My body keeps black disabled archives. With the marking of every season, including winter, I am reminded that the system's intent, it is meant to keep us in change, to break us. This does not come as a surprise. But deep within my soul, the song of my ancestors rise. Does my blackness offend you? My eyes sparkle in the dark, full-bodied melanin, laughing at the, in the midst of impression. It's good holistic medicine. You may rip me from your textbooks. You may whitewash the words I speak. You may assassinate me with your death-dealing policies, but still, like an archivist, my body keeps Black disabled archives. Does my history upset you? Does my Black joy come as a surprise? Because I walk into rooms with a spirit that refuses to succumb to lies. No longer interested in being a political pawn, my body keeps Black disabled archives. Looking over King's Mountaintop to a new dawn, my body keeps Black disabled archives. I'm a Black woman speaking my truth. I shouldn't have to keep receipts. I am my own proof. Living in present-day terror and fear, my body keeps Black disabled archives. Looking forward to a day when my Blackness doesn't generate fear. My body keeps Black disabled archives. Calling aloud my ancestors' names, they are the ones that reignite my flame. My body keeps Black disabled archives. So just a way to process both identities in one. And also I hope somebody's watching the time and you can always stop me. So white supremacy culture is infused in all of this. And this, um, there's a good document. I meant to print one out, but you can look it up. Done by Kenneth Jones and, and Tina Okun about the ways in which our society as a whole is formed in white supremacy culture. Things like worship of the written word, Things like the right to comfort, right? Who has the right to comfort doesn't. So it's an invitation to look at that. Um, thinking about, I'm going to skip this real quick. Okay, so thinking about the images that we have often seen, seen historically, how disability has been framed, right? It is usually a white child to to engender some sort of pity or um, work on those heartstrings uh, to see, to often to get money, right? To raise money for sometimes good things like research and, and, or to exploit um, folks with disabilities. So these are like historical images. And then if folks are, um, I'm familiar with um, Jerry Lewis, right? So again, these are images of how people with disabilities were historically viewed. 
so to engender this pity and um, support and money. There's another one. And notice again, both white, uh, white kids. Um, and I put Jerry's kids here, even though this one isn't, but this is actually Shriners Hospital. Um, so historically it's happened with things like um, Jerry's kids, but it's still happening now. You'll see commercials all the time. You know, if you, right, it's again, pulling on those heartstrings, but it's holding those things in tension because it brings money and we, and we need the research. And yet, is there a better way to display what it is to be a part of the disability culture that doesn't have people thinking this is one culture I wouldn't want to be a part of ever? When realistically, um, it's possible for anyone to be. And then this is him all gr grown up. Um, and I think about uh, one Halloween, I had to come up with a costume and I don't like spending money on something I'm only going to wear once. So I got a sandwich board and I got a picture of myself as a, as a little kid and I put Jerry's kid on it. And then on the back, I had a picture of myself and as a, as an adult and I did Jerry's kid all grown up, which, uh, which sparked a lot of conversation around uh, disability and what that means. Also, big people in the disability rights movement, right? We have Justin Dart, we have Ed Roberts, we have Judy Human who recently died. Amazing people who did lots of stuff to move forward the, the disability movement and yet white faces. Here we go. And then our big supposed um, emancipation proclamation, right? Which has allowed at least uh, more access than we would have had. And I'm also aware that this is the only civil rights law that isn't enforced really. And the only way to enforce it is that folks have to do lawsuits, right? It's always under attack. And yet, uh, you don't hear much about how the Black Panther Party was a big influence on the disability rights movement um, and how they helped with a lot of the protests and things like making sure that folks had food. Um, so again, like I said, I'm in this process of trying to figure out and and dig up uh, those Black people and people of color who were part of uh, the disability rights movement historically. There's definitely more folks of color who are speaking into it now. Though. And this feminist woman, womanist identity. There is a quote when I was doing my research for my doctorate uh, by Deborah Kramer. And she specifically says, throughout much of history, people with disabilities have been oppressed and repressed as individuals and as a social group. People with disabilities have been isolated, incarcerated, institutionalized, and controlled. 
without entering into any sort of oppression derby over which minority group has been the most oppressed in history. It is important to note that people with disabilities, especially those who experience double or triple oppression based on other categories, excuse me, other categories of gender, race, class, and so on, have experienced some of the worst that history has had to offer. It's a good quote to ponder on this morning. And so, again, as part of that same book that I talked about earlier, thinking about how do we write a prayer for those in, who inhabit Black female bodies? Could we, even in the negative or sad ways that we see a lot of the hashtags for men who have been murdered by police, um, they're Black men, which they do deserve that acknowledgement, but more than that, uh, deserve to live when there's often Black women. Um, you hear it's often silenced or ignored. And so again, to lift up um, perhaps this part of the population uh, that is marginalized in a, in a double way. So mothering God, because I understand God to be uh, outside of gender, right? And so it can, can move in those ways. One who has nurtured us since our birth, who has promised never to forget us, Comfort us when our bodies are neglected and experimented on by the healthcare system. Shield us from being exploited by the media and all who wish to do us harm. Hear our silent cries when our pain is ignored or, or when we are expected to be strong. When our contributions in public and private life are made invisible or stolen from us. And when our deaths are easily forgotten, especially when it is violence, give us the courage to grieve privately and publicly. And may we be consoled at your breast so that we have the strength to hold people and systems accountable for the violence against our bodies. We pray this in the name of the triune God, our great parent. Amen. So what is disability theology? There is a woman who has since died, but her name is um, Nancy Eastland, who was getting her, yeah, who was getting her master's degree or doctorate, I don't remember. And she said there's liberation theology and there's all these kinds of theology. What does this field have to say for people with disabilities? And like any good teacher, uh, they said, that's your work to do. And so uh, I would recommend a book called The Disabled God, uh, where she highlights um, how disability theology speaks to not just those of us with disabilities, but opens us up to a different way or a more expansive way to view God or the divine around us. And I just got the signal that we are going to get to our question time. So maybe uh, through questions, we'll talk more about it. But really, it just amplifies the voices of people with disabilities within 
uh, the Bible and other theology because there's folks who are Jewish who are doing this work and Muslims. So it doesn't, it's not just the, the Christian traditions. Just very quickly, next week's presentation is going to be by Angela Schultz of the National Organization Compassion and Choices. And the title of her presentation is Conversations That Count, Finding Power and Peace in Charting Your End-of-Life Journey. So we turn now to the question and answer period. What we ask you to do is form a line over here on my left so that the speaker is aware of how many people might be waiting to ask a question. Um, and one of the problems we've had in the past is people really need to speak into this microphone as you see me doing this kind of distance. If you get too far back, it doesn't pick it up. And so the people who are listening online aren't able to hear the questions that are asked. So please make sure you're getting close enough to the microphone. Um, be sure uh, one question per person and make sure it's a question and not a comment. Okay, so we will begin with questions. Um, would you address the issue of Social Security and the loss, the potential loss of your Social Security benefits if you make a certain amount of money as an employed person? Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky balance to make, um, and uh, it essentially, in my view, is it is an intentional way to keep people in poverty, right? So, like, if you, I think you can't make more than one thousand two hundred dollars a month. They may have changed it, like, upped it a little bit more, but it still keeps people in part-time work or no work uh, because if you need help with like personal care, you got to really like, is it important that I get dressed and am able to function that way or work? So, or when we talk about marriage equality, often people with disabilities are left out of that conversation as well, because if you get married, potentially you can lose your benefits based on, Yeah. Is it my imagination or has there been a great increase in the uh, people being portrayed as uh, disabled and needing assistance in the media recently? You touched on this with Jerry's kids and so on, but I wondered, is it my imagination or is there a lot more of this lately? So I think uh, there is, I think a calculated attempt to be, to be more to have people with disabilities more visible, um, in more positive ways. So you'll see ads. Mostly, I've seen Target has done it lately. Well, you'll see people with disabilities in their ads along with people that don't have disabilities. So there's a there's a mix. I I would say still. Good morning. Thank you for being here. I have a lot of questions, but I'll do one at a time. I wanted to talk about the kind of the hierarchies versus acquired disability and uh, congenital being born with. Do you believe with African-Americans and more social media that they're getting a little bit better uh, as in getting the point out there and being seen more 
that that people that are have acquired the disabilities later in life are actually showing and getting more attention. I hate saying that for pointing out institutional, societal, and attitudinal barriers where people such as myself or other people have been born with it and have been screaming about it forever. But they're the ones going, hey, look, I can't get into my hotel room or look, I can't uh, rent a car from Hertz. Um, Yet there are actually, I'm seeing more and more voices from the African-American community and especially from more uh, disabled black men, which usually get zero um, other than being pulled over more often uh, that have CP or that are deaf. Can you comment on that? Yes, I'm I'm thinking yes. (laughs) Yes. All the things. And I would say, I think... And still, people that with acquired disabilities are getting more attention um, because of their social networking. And I don't mean like Instagram. I mean, because they have access to power that folks who are born with disabilities don't have often. Uh, thank you for uh, explaining you identify as African-American. I was a little surprised. but I mean, you know. Um, anyway, so uh, my question, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to uh, people with mental health issues and how that can, you know, if the prognosis is severe enough, be kind of a uh, disability as well. Yeah, so within the disability community, there is both visible disabilities and invisible disabilities, which people with mental health disabilities fall into that. Um and they fight a stigma in some ways that I don't have to. I walk into a room and you can tell I have a disability. They may walk into a room and unless something is very visible about it, you won't know. Um, and so it's like fighting the being believed, their story being believed, and then also fighting the societal stigma around uh, in our society around like, people who are mass shooters or things like that, it's always connected to like mental health, which is not true that most of the times people with mental health disabilities experience violence and are not the ones uh, making the violence happen. I'd like to know more about your podcast. Is it something that's ongoing or was it a beginning and an end? And and how does this conversation that you're having now continue in your podcast? So it was on the Millennial Pastor podcast for one season. Um, and it's like many conversations with people with different disabilities, both who acquired it and those who were born with it. Um, so it was one season. And I'm in conversations with another group of folks to continue the the podcast and conversation. So, yes. Your friend Lon Swearinger. Yeah. Hey, Lon. He says, uh, what do you think of ADAPT? Hmm, I'm curious. I haven't heard about the ADAPT. Well, let's, let's ask Lon to um, expand on that question. Yes. Could you talk about or address how people that are disabled, which I've run into myself, are kind of caught up in the theology and people are come at them and they are prayed at? And have a uh, seemingly are I'm not sure how to say this. Their intimacy is invaded as they are touched. 
by other people, but in the sense of theology, people come up to them and say that you can be healed, you can be prayed, or they're prayed out against their will and say a grocery line and have people talk about how they are possibly cursed, the curse of ham, and how theology is kind of pushed upon them in that kind of um, environment as a reverend. Can you address that? Yeah. How so they can maybe respond in a kind way to kind of get people off of them? I or, know. Or they can... I'm also a New Yorker. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. Thank you. Um, this has happened a lot, right? This is an experience of folks, especially if it's a visible disability. Um, you can just be shopping and folks will come up to you and say, and sometimes they say, can I pray for you? A lot of times they just touch you. And so it's learning ways to say, I'm okay. It's you that have this issue. Can we talk about that? And this theology of consent, right? That like, which I think largely as a society, we're getting better at, even if when you're asking someone for a hug, you can ask for consent. Um, so that's the thing that uh, I would promote. So theology of consent and the theology to say that folks with disabilities re uh, represent the divine just as those without disabilities and those who have who want to heal us, um, I would, I would wonder, like, if you're wearing glasses, like, to think about a larger, I think, ways that um, disability is part of our culture, and this myth of the normal body, right? And so usually I try and pick out things that help them to see that they also, if you're going to pray for me, then let me pray for you because you can't see because you have glasses on. <laughs> yeah. A, a, a St. Louis uh, watcher on YouTube is uh, explaining ADAPT as, uh, as an activist group. Oh, ADAPT. Okay, I heard. I'm, I just used the acronyms. Okay, that's why I was like, ADAPT? I was like, that's a new law? I don't know. Um, so ADAPT is a kind of a, a non-violent um, group that does a lot of demonstrations around um, lack of access to things. So um, um, they'll stage demonstrations. And actually, I love ADAPT. Um, and uh, it is a, one of the ways that people with disabilities have gotten media attention, not for the sake of media attention, but to lift up the plight of those with disabilities and to say, like, we didn't have access to federal buildings and our taxes are paying those things. We, uh, cause I'm also a part of the poor people's campaign. Right. And so there was just Reverend Barber who was trying to go to the movies with his 90 something year old mom, but needed to use a, a particular stool because he couldn't bend down to sit in the, in the seat. And they uh, escorted him out, right? So these are works that are still needing to be done. Um, and my thought was, let's get all us disabled people in there and with all the chairs. So, yes, ADAPT is a, a group of revolutionaries, I'd say. In discussion of words, and you talked about shifting from handicapped to accessible which I find very helpful. I was in a discussion recently where I mentioned something about uh, disabled people. 
and I was reprimanded for using the word disabled or disability and told that I should be saying persons who are differently abled. So, I mean, it was embarrassing, it was awkward, and I was, my intentions were sincere. So can you address that? So just like in any community, um, there are different points of view. Um, there are folks who ascribe to the what people first language, which is the person with a disability, which is to um, uh, amplify the personhood first and not just the condition of folks. And that was work done by lots of disability rights advocates, which we want to honor because they were coming against the society that didn't even see people with disability as human. And there are, within the disability community, a growing number of folks, particularly those who uh, are uh, autistic or those who are deaf, who would say, deafness, being autistic is who I am, and we're going to reclaim that word, right? So disabled person, uh, being disabled, the word disability, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, we don't have to have this stigma around it. I tend to flow in and out of it, right? So even in my poem, you heard me say disabled person. You also heard me say crippled, which is not word I would suggest you use uh, unless you are part of the disability community. And by that, I mean, usually in presentations like this, I err on the side of people's first language just as a, a safe base, right? Um, but if I know I'm in a group of people that are just folks with disabilities, we kind of have an interesting humor, right? And so using words like crippled, is kind of what we do. But um, yeah, but again, so it depends on the person. And so I guess I would err on listen to the language that person is using. And if you don't know, ask. So we still have a few minutes left. I think you had some more slides that you wanted to work through. So we had to take the time to do that. Uh, again, and we ask questions to amplify, again, disability theology amplifies the voices of people with disabilities. It doesn't practice disability erasure, which is this idea of healing us so that our disability doesn't exist, right? It also is a tricky thing around um, genetics, right? Because we can do a lot of genetic testing now to prevent things and i'm while there's good to that i'm also wondering like are we trying to not have a culture of people right so it's balancing those things uh recognizes the possibility of disability that our bodies are are fragile things all right and anybody can have a disability and the possibility positive things that are people with disabilities are capable of. And I talked a little bit about the disabled God, right? This this is the image that Nancy Eastland offers to us in her book, uh, The Disabled God. Um, and she says this is how, when she had to think about picturing what God is like, she said, uh, she saw God in a sip of 
puff wheelchair. That is the chair used mostly by quadriplegics, enabling them to maneuver by blowing and sucking on a straw-like device. Not an omnipotent, self-sufficient God, but neither a potable suffering servant. In this moment, I beheld God as survivor, unpitying and forthright. I recognize the incarnate Christ in the image of those judged not feasible, unemployable, with questionable quality of life. Here was God to me. So this juxtaposition of God being the all-powerful one and God being a quadriplegic. Hi there. Um, I was hoping you could settle a... Uh... A disagreement Ooh. that I was in recently mm-hmm. over what I call the R word. Um, and this person said that uh, in medical circles, that's still a diagnosis. And I just wanted to know where that stands, if people, if that's true, if people are still working to change that. Um, so there you go. Yeah. So I'm also a chaplain uh, at a hospital and that is still a word that is used in terms of medical diagnosis. And there are people working to try and change that language. Yes. I have, my son is, uh, is handicapped. He started having strokes at age 10 and um, he strives to do two things. He strives to disassociate himself as being handicapped, although he is. He's got he's got left side deficit and 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 it's the the issue of of how handicapped people have progressively or progressively get worse and he the concern he has too about Social Security and healthcare benefits and cost of meds uh, he started having some seizures uh, as, as a result of some of this and so. Would you discuss the idea that you might lose your health benefits also if you take a job uh, or if you make more money too? And then it's Yeah. I'm trying to not use the word. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing, right? And I would say if I were speaking to your son, um, that I'd probably say in a nicer way than what I can put it up right now, but I would say that internalized um uh, ableism is there, but only because he, probably he knew himself as someone without a disability, right? And then now he's experiencing these things because of a, a stroke. Um, yeah. Let me let me add that he was able to ride a bicycle and was a young kid, yeah. and then at age ten, then he became disabled, and that mm-hmm. uh, had led into why he wants to identify as non non uh, handicapped. I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I would say he needs to, as we all do, right, know people who are part of that community that he can see as successful and living um, the quality of life he is, he wants. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Uh, Lon, Lon Swearingen, is, uh, is there any, an update on the concept of, that the book, No Pity, was written about. I'm trying to remember. I know that that was one of the books I had to read when I 
first came to the whole first. We're gonna not. We're gonna admonish Lon. <laughs> but I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I, I admit my ignorance. Help me understand how it is that we're in a world where having some sort of inability to do X, Y, or Z and function in the adult arena, how is it that the punishment is there if you desire to contribute to society and you want a living wage? How come they've got it hooked up with you having to be less of yourself in order to qualify for the benefits? And that is the work that still needs to be done in the disability community, but it requires not just folks that identify within the community, but those who who don't, right? Like this. And because we live in a, whether we want to admit it or not, we live in a caste system, right? So there, there are those who have and there are those who don't. And you can't to mix that power up it changes the system so we've got to dismantle a lot more of the system as a whole thank you very much for joining us today we also encourage you to attend the service which will be at 10:45 in bragg auditorium further down the hall um thank you for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you next week Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Join us again next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for another episode of the All Souls Forum. And now stay tuned for Taste of Tejano following immediately and Breaking Through the Darkness at 10 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.